Welcome to the Control-Alt Azure podcast. I'm Yusip. And I'm Tobias. Join us for a journey in the cloud. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Control-Alt Azure. And again, I am here with Yusip Roine. What is up? Good morning, Toby. I am in Lisbon currently. I'm I'm staying in this nice hotel. At least I've I've got a window here, but no sunshine. So I flew yesterday from Helsinki to Lisbon. It's a direct flight, but surprisingly, it takes five hours. And and uh, we landed, and the hotel is quite close to the airport. So I hop in the taxi. We drive to the hotel, and upon arrival, the taxi driver goes, "Okay, so that will be what twenty-two euro or something." I hand over my 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 uh, corporate Amex, uh, and and it's it's shiny, it's new. I wanted to try it out, and and the taxi driver goes, "Oh, sorry, no credit cards." I tried with my <laughs> Mastercard, no Visa, no cash only, and mm-hmm. then I made the mistake of saying, "Sorry, I left my cash in 1995." Yeah. And, <laughs> and the uh, the driver didn't really appreciate my joke. I was a bit tired at the same time, so we spent the better portion of the evening finding an ATM, getting 40 euro and then paying and now have a bunch of coins that I never, but (laughs) other than that, everything is good. How about for you? Yeah. So I actually also had a a taxi the other night uh, coming home from the airport from Munich. And one thing I learned over the years, regardless of where I am, my absolute first question is, do you take a credit card? Do you take a MasterCard or whatever card you have every single time? And, you know, I'm surprised by the amount of time they say no or you know, tonight the machine is broken. So yeah. if you have cash, that's good. Yeah. I'm like, I don't have cash. And he's like, okay, then the card is okay. <laughs> exactly. And, and I, I asked my driver as well, so do any of the taxis take card? And he goes, well, there's this one taxi at the airport. You should have found that one. I'm like, oh, sorry. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so other, otherwise for me, what I'm doing is I started with, maybe I mentioned this in the past episodes, um, like night hiking. So we go out with like 5,000 lumen, uh, lamps on our foreheads into the forest, pitch black. It wow. is so dark. So we have to have these headlights on, on our foreheads and we go like 10 kilometers just into the woods, go hiking. Um, such an adrenaline rush. And, you know, we see a lot of deer, a lot of animals. And yeah, it's, it's pretty interesting to see uh, the forest. And also pretty oh. scary. So. Oh, wow. That's, that's, that's super interesting because I, I've always lived next to, next to a forest or nature. But but to me, night hiking is not something I've even considered because yeah, it's pitch black. Let's not go out. But this yeah. this makes me think I want to buy these five thousand lumen lumen uh, things on my head and and walk walk in the wilderness and the locals can point at me from their balconies that there's the crazy thing going. Yep. Yeah, you can get some strange looks for sure. Uh, but you know, try it out if you have a forest close by. Night hiking is actually pretty fun. Just. Don't do what we did. We're, we're a bunch of friends going out and we watched the Blair Witch Project just before because we thought, hey, it would be fun to, you know, scare us up a little bit and then go out. And we did. Yeah. That was no fun. Like we literally ran through the forest. <laughs> <laughs> Good tip. Uh, I promise not, not, not to see that beforehand. Alrighty, but happy to see you safe and sound back home. Um, okay, so today we'll talk about Azure DevOps and, and especially embracing something called DevSecOps. So, so DevOps generally, not a product. Uh, how do you 
how do you see DevOps today? Is this something you wake up in the morning and you, you realize you want to implement something? I, I've, I've met with a lot of developers who swear by, by the notion that whatever they do when they open Visual Studio or Visual Studio Code, the first thing they do, they configure everything DevOps-y. Is this something you do? Or are you more like, more, more like me that you need to get coding first so that you kind of know that, okay, this is how I want to build it out? So it, uh, that's a great question and, and it depends. So DevOps to me, I mean, uh, this is something I adopt every day. It's a, it's a process that helps you in all portions of development and operation and anything in between and, and kind of removes the hurdle that back in the day, we always had code. I coded on my machine and I submitted this to, to Git or to Subversion or to TFS or, you know, whatever classical um, or classic build systems you had back in the day. And then you had something running potentially on the server um, before you deployed it or you didn't. Now with DevOps, it's a bit more integrated. So I am kind of leaning towards the, the people you just explained that when I build something new and if I know it's a project or I know it's something that need to be built and that need to then be maintained, definitely I have even a build process in place before I even start. So when I commit my first line of code, there is a build server or an agent picking up the code and running quality checks. It's running um, code security analysis, which is kind of what we'll dive into later with DevSecOps. Um, so, you know, all, all those kind of things. But again, it depends. Are you d just doing a proof of concept? Then no. Then you just open Visual Studio, you start coding whatever it is you need to do a proof of concept of. But if it's something that needs some kind of longevity or that needs to, in some sense, be maintained or shared, definitely, uh, you know, I hook that up to, to my DevOps process. Um, and, and the DevOps process can be, you know, it's not about the tool you use. It's about how you embrace the the process to, in my case, I use Azure DevOps, which is a service in, in the Azure uh, space where you can get Azure boards and here you can get the value, um, you know, for agile planning and tracking and bug tracking and, you know, discussions around the work that you need to do. You have the Azure pipelines, which is pretty much the CI CD kind of uh, angle to it. You can automate everything. So every time you commit something, uh, you can automate that. You have repositories, which is most of the time, Git repositories uh, also tied into this. And then you have test plans and artifacts if you build your own NuGets and you know, a plethora of extensions in the marketplace that you can just plug into your pipelines. So it's a, the question is pretty open. And I realized I just answered very widely that you know, the final answer is it depends. Yes, that, that's the best answer for consultants um, <laughs> or recovering consultants, as, as, as we might say. Um, so... I probably get to ask the stupid questions every now and then. Uh, so explain it to me like I'm five. I'm a huge fan of, 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 of that approach. Is that if I implement, if I create code, if I, if I create a proof of concept that later uh, evolves into a sort of a product or something that I would use in, in projects, and I choose not to use Azure DevOps to begin with, but let's say I've got a free subscription from GitHub, or my company is using a local source code server or source code versioning system, would I then be able to just live within those tools? Or should I look into Azure DevOps as, as this kind of final sort of solution that, that fixes everything? So yeah, that's a great question. And of course, if I were putting on a Microsoft marketing hat, which I don't, 
uh, then I would, of course, say you should move everything to Azure DevOps. But truth be told, most of my projects that are uh, personal projects and like the big spare time projects, they're on GitHub. And I have them on GitHub. And then I still use a portion of Azure DevOps, which is the pipelines and artifacts for building NuGets. So I have all my builds, all my release pipes to publish things to the cloud in Azure DevOps. But I actually have my code in GitHub. And there's no reason for me to change that right now. But there's also no pros or cons in, in the way I do things right now that would uh, you know, tell me to use one or the other. But you can get Azure DevOps also for free. Uh, and if you have like public open source projects, you can also utilize free build agents and free uh, build minutes from the hosted Microsoft agents. So you, you get a lot for free if, if you do open source projects also, which is kind of cool. Okay. Um, and back in the day, uh, we would have perhaps TFS Team Foundation Server, and then it used to be called Visual Studio Team Services, Visual Studio Online later on when it, when it became an online product. Now it's Azure DevOps, but we still have the on-premises server variant of Azure DevOps. And a lot of people often say we have TFS when they might mean the newer version of TFS called Azure DevOps Server. Uh, I don't see it that often, but especially for enterprises who back in the day, they decided that we do not trust the public cloud. We want to host all the code locally. They might still be, and they can be, can be running those for the future and for the time being quite comfortably. Do you operate your own DevOps servers locally or do you use everything from the cloud? So everything I do, both in business and personal projects is 100%. So there was a time where I also embraced setting up our own servers and, you know, configuring everything. But, you know, with the security implementations and all the layers of security that Microsoft have put in place in all of their services today, because we run all the services with all the data anyway in the cloud uh, in Azure, then why not also have the build system? Because that makes, in, makes sense. Yeah, because you know, in, in the end, sure, the source code is, could be PII and this could be our proprietary code and, and stuff like this, but in the end, it's the data that's running and the data that we have, which is important to protect. And this is also in the cloud with you know, a plethora of layers of security. So the same applies to Azure DevOps, we also run this in the cloud with all the security mechanisms in place for that. Okay, so let's imagine now we have a company with five developers. They are using uh, Azure DevOps to, to store all of their source code in there. They're, they're not using GitHub. They use some capabilities from Azure DevOps. They use Visual Studio 2019 to, to write that code. And now somebody reads online about DevSecOps. Is this something this sort of a team or company should look into? Or can they safely say, no, no, we're secure enough already? Um, so the short answer to that is you are never secure enough. And uh, I, I want to find a diplomatic way of saying that. But, you know, in the end, 2019 was the worst year yet for data breaches. Um, and a lot of these things come from code and from misconfigured environments and servers. And, you know, people putting files in the cloud and they have no idea how to protect them. So whether you're a one-man band or if you have five people in your team or if you are 5,000 people in your organization or 50,000, doesn't matter. You need to embrace security. And the sooner you do it, the easier it's going to be to maintain that. Because uh, if you start without adopting security in your processes, then at some, time, some point in time, you might say, you know what, now we want to start 
thinking about security. And if you do that as an after the fact, and you start running code security analysis at that point, then you might have quite a lot of things to fix that you've already built. Whereas if you kind of embrace the DevSecOps mindset, then you kind of empower and want to ensure that you can empower developers to influence security changes. So it's not about one security expert in the end saying this is a go or no go. It is also about this process is about empowering the developers and understanding and influencing the security changes themselves and by giving them all the tools also necessary to do that. And some of those tools are integrated into the DevOps pipeline. So for Azure DevOps, there's certain tools for it. Um, and if you use other DevOps uh, platforms, there's tools for that. And there's also extensions for Visual Studio. So there, it's never a point in time where you say, after this size of the project or after you know, this headcount of a project, we start with security. No, you start with that from day one. And that's the only recommendation I can you know, confidently give. Um, and coming back to what I mentioned there with data breaches, um, 2019 was, you know, it was unprecedented amount of data breaches that went public and so much data has been exposed. And what we also saw is that some of these breaches and some of the things that are maliciously infected are third-party libraries. So there's some known vulnerabilities in NPM packages. So if you build a lot of uh, Node.js and JavaScript and TypeScript, whatever it is, and you pull in, um, uh, NPM packages, how do you know that they are secure? Even if you believe that your own code is secure enough, how do you know that all the dependencies, like if you pull in one NPM package, there will be a lot of dependencies on other packages and frameworks and things that you have no idea about. How do you know that that's secure? Because they're not always. And it was proven several times that there are malicious and infected packages. And this also goes for NuGet. If you're building .NET, you pull in a NuGet. How do you know that the code inside of that NuGet is secure, right? So you can secure your own code, but if you then pull in dependencies that your code rely on, you also need to verify that whatever binaries are in there and whatever code you pull in is also secure. This kind of uh, gives you the demand for having the DevSecOps mindset already from start, because otherwise you're just pulling in dependencies and you have no idea where data is gonna end up because some of the packages, they will send telemetry, whether you want it or not. How do you know what telemetry is going to send? Is it going to send your email address or usernames or just sessions or your computer name or IP address? Because this happens. So these things are important to take a look at. Um, and when embracing like the DevSecOps, it's also like the mindset. It doesn't have to be uh, complex to start with these things because you deliver small frequent releases and you do this with agile methodology. So whenever you have a new feature, a new item or thing you're working on, you build it, you commit it, you run analysis on it, it's flagged green, all right, it goes into the release pipe. That's it. Instead of this big chunk of analysis at the end of a project. All righty. Uh, I did a project maybe two, three years ago, and the project lead, um, he paid me to write a bunch of proof of concepts and, and hands-on-lapse code. So I ended up with perhaps 15 different examples. And the project lead later, when we were done with the project and everything was done and dusted, and I, I had already moved on, um, the project lead pinged me later and said, you see, we'd like to store all of this source code on GitHub to make it a public repo so that others could also benefit, benefit from this. And mm -hmm. I figured, yeah, sure, why not? And, and I did like a cursory glance through the code. Yeah, no passwords, no this and that. 
and I push that to a private repo first. And, and after maybe two hours, I got an email from GitHub, like an automated email complaining that, okay, you're using this and this, this and this library and, and it's out of date and there's a security issue with this and this library. And I was probably using the sort of libraries that are so popular that GitHub is already proactively scanning and checking that, okay, this, this guy is using something he shouldn't really be using. And then they are giving me advice on what should. So with this context, I, I figured that if I had had DevSecOps and, and if, if I'd be using Azure DevOps, but I could still use GitHub, I think, for, for storing my source code. Yep. Then I would have been able to avoid those sort of problems I had when I pushed my code to GitHub. Yeah, and, and it all comes down to how you configure your builds and your PR gates. And, and um, like, so what we do is whenever you commit code, it is. It has to be in a separate branch. You can never submit to the main branch. So you always commit to a separate branch and then you submit a PR saying, I want to merge this branch into the main branch or the developer or whatever you call it. And before that's even remotely considered, there's a bunch of builds running with credential scanning to ensure that you haven't put any clear text credentials in the code. And then there's code analysis and then there's code security analysis. And there's you know, a whole bunch of things that you can automate on the DevOps side, but also, of course, with GitHub and, and if you use other tools. Uh, so my source code is in GitHub, but I am using DevOps to run these code checks. So before it's actually merged and approved, um, I actually have a couple of builds running saying it's a go or a no-go. Yeah. So in essence, any company currently using Azure DevOps can bolt on DevSecOps later on, or if they're beginning with a new project now, they can choose and say, yeah, let's let's include DevSecOps as a part of our overall uh, build process and pipelines. Yeah, exactly that. And you know, the the final final line. We can talk about this forever, but I think the final line on on that is sooner than later is is good. So, like you say, if you start start fresh, you know, it should be mandatory thinking uh, to have you know the security aspect of your DevOps process. If you already have a huge project. Now is the time to start thinking about how you can embrace DevSecOps to introduce those the security mindset. Um, and there's, you know, speaking about the reasons why this is important, uh, there's quite a lot of them. And often you hear people say, well, our code gets published to Azure and Azure functions and websites and whatever it is. And that's secured by Microsoft, right? And that's not entirely true because there are capabilities to secure things layer on layer on layer. So you can protect things, but it's not by default always the case. Sure, it has encryption, it has HTTPS, but it does not have automatic firewall um, you know, enabled and all these things because that is very dependent on your own setup. So there's something called the shared responsibility, uh, I think it's called the shared responsibility model in Azure. And most cloud providers have that. Um, and, and they make it clear who's responsible for what type of asset in their cloud offering. So for example, if it's a, um, an operating system level, like if it's not a SaaS, but it's an on-prem type of solution, who's responsible for that? Um, what, who's responsible if you run a VM in the cloud? Who's responsible for the security? Uh, who's responsible if you run a SaaS solution for the uh, accounts and identities and devices and information and data? It's not Microsoft, it's actually you. So even if Microsoft owns like the service and they provide it with all the security mechanisms, the shared responsibility model 
dictates that it's still you as a customer that is always responsible to secure your data, your endpoints, your accounts, and your uh, access management. And this is uh, documented very well. I will put this also in the show notes. So regardless if you want to embrace security mindset or not, because some people say that I put it in Azure and Azure is inherently secure. That's true to some extent, but you still need to configure it. And also there's nothing protecting you from yourself. So if you put in code into your applications and that code in itself is sending data offsite or accidentally deleting data from your databases, whatever, nobody can protect you from that except for yourself. So that's also why you need these code analyses processes and code security. And this, this really goes beyond also just code. It goes through the whole thinking within the team that how do we approach responsibility? How do we approach security? One of my, one of my favorite examples, and, and it's a fairly recent one, and there's an analogy here, so bear with me. Um, this was on the news in Finland a couple of days ago that, you know, these this huge hypermarkets where you go by car, you park your car and, and then you go to buy your groceries and whatever else you need in your home. And they often have these sort of pop-up, uh, uh, how do you call it, pop-up stands or booths with people trying to sell you something additional, like, like a salesperson who gets salaried based on provisions. So the right. more you buy, the more salary they get. So, so they have an incentive to push something for you. And oftentimes it's mobile operators who try to push you a new contract. So they might be asking you across the corridor, oh, which operator are you using? And, mm-hmm. and you're kind of inclined to be polite and say, yeah, I'm using this and this. Oh, but we, we have a cheaper price. We have this, we have better 4G or something else. And this was on the news that uh, some inventive salespeople at, at, at one operator, they were stopping people and, and, and telling them, yeah, we've got a better offering. It's cheaper than what you have now. And then the customer or would-be customer would say, well, I'm not sure it's cheaper because I pay X. And then the salesperson would say, uh, hold on, let's have a look. And they would log in to the competitor's website using your email address. They would casually query your email address. And then they would hit on reset password. Wow. And your phone would get a bling. Oh, so what's the new password? Let me just quickly see what contracts you have in here. <laughs> and surprisingly, many people would say, yeah, sure, I have nothing to hide. So wow. I'm willing to share this information with you, meaning that I'm willing to share the password allow you to reset, reset it to a new one. I'm also willing to, to, sell, uh, to share with you my home address, my, my billing and invoicing details, as well as all the family members that might be under that same contract. And to me, I felt that this, this cannot be happening because I failed to understand how somebody could, could think about this like this. But then again, you have this sort of salesperson who gets salary based on provision and that person found this amazing approach to make more money. And, and I think there, there was a lack of shared responsibility model in the sense it wasn't clear what, what knowledge and information you're responsible for and what knowledge is the customer's responsibility. And when, once you get those mixed, be it a contract, a password, a certificate, or a VM or something else in a public cloud, the same sort of thinking still seems to apply. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it applies to all things in life, really. Just when it comes to Azure and, and the services you run, it is documented and it is our responsibility 
um, and consuming the service to actually understand that. So this, this is a great analogy and it's important to understand that, you know, there's variables in every story, there's variables. Um, and another thing on, on that is, you know, security is an organization-wide responsibility and it has to be. Uh, a single individual or team, you know, can seldom push through a good security awareness successfully in the organization if the leaders are not on board to set a good example, because then you're going to fight headwind all the time, you know, an uphill battle. If you So by training the team, collaborating on tasks related to security and kind of embrace the mindset of zero trust that Microsoft is pushing a lot and also assume compromise, which is also a great mindset to have. Because uh, if you always assume you will be compromised, you're always going to take the extra step to ensure security. But if you assume that you're already secure, it's too late. Because if your mindset is is that everything is okay, then you will never be able to proactively protect yourself or your company from whatever may happen. And that's where my favorite part comes in, which is a security development lifecycle or SDL. And this is actually documented very well by Microsoft. So when we think about not just the process, but also on the technical side, um, you can implement a security development lifecycle, which helps you uh, kind of identify what things you need related to security. Um, and things around that is like training and the requirements and the design and the implementation, verification, release and response. When you get an incident, you know, all these things can be planned and thought about and you can set up a policy. But again, if you read the official documentations on Microsoft security development lifecycle, you know, there's a plethora of resources. And if you're a small project or if you're a big project, but you never thought about it and you look at this, you see, holy smoke, it's going to be an entirely new project just to enable security um, on this. So you don't have to do everything at once. Take small steps, but do take the steps. Start somewhere. It's better to start today than not start at all. So is, is DevSecOps, is it a sub-part of security development lifecycle? Because to me, it sounds like SDL, the security development lifecycle, that's the big, big process thing that that explains everything as it relates to security in your development life cycle and would devsecops then be like a module that you plug in as part of that or is this a separate process that can touch upon multiple points in your overall development process yeah that's a great question and i uh, generally i don't like to differentiate too much from you know the different definitions of what is what to me i have DevOps, which is now DevSecOps. So inherently our DevOps process need to uh, contain also security measurements. And the SDL or the security development lifecycle is more how we, uh, how we get that thing into our DevSecOps process and what pieces of the pie do we want to start with. Um, and using the Microsoft official documentation for this is a great first step because there you can see, okay, we already do these things. I had no idea about this. And here is how I do those things. And so, so to me, that's more of a go-to guide for getting the entire process. And, you know, security is a continuous effort. So it fits right into the DevSecOps. And, you know, threats are ever changing. And so does the security tool chains we use. And therefore, it is essential to run them regularly uh, as a routine and, you know, not after the fact. Because if you run it after something happened or if you only run it at the end of a project, you know, the work is going to be tremendously huge. Uh, to get done. Whereas if you run it continuously, then maybe the first time you run it, it might be a bit overwhelming saying you have a plethora of things you need to look at. Then you do look at them and you fix them once. And then you have this continuous um, security analysis on every commit, 
which means that ideally you should never have to think about it. The only, uh, only times you have to think about it is when the build says your latest code submission did not actually get approved because you introduced clear text, uh, client ID and client C or whatever it is, whatever your tools will report on. So I, I see, you know, SDL and uh, DevSecOps as highly intertwined. Okay. So, so to recap, we started with DevOps, uh, kind of the thinking with, with DevOps doing continuous development and, and operations at the same time or, or in, in an intertwined model so that, that one hand knows what the other one is doing. And then moving on to Azure DevOps, meaning you could use the tooling from Microsoft called Azure DevOps as well as the on-premises version. And as part of this, you can also store your source code in GitHub. You don't necessarily have to have it in Azure DevOps. Yeah, exactly. and, and then we kind of transformed our thinking from DevOps to DevSecOps to have security built in as a default in there. And once you introduce the SDL, the security development lifecycle on top of this, that gives this overreaching end-to-end thinking to all things on security development. Yeah, that's a good summary. And there's one thing I, I realized now that I forgot to mention, which is like, if we talk about the mindset, this is a, a great tip. And there's something called in the security sphere, shifting left, right? And if you think about your project phase or um, yeah, everything you do in a project as a timeline, then ideally or normally, you know, a bit simplified, but it's first you plan, then you code, then you build, then you test, then you release, and then you operate things, right? And then you iterate. And this is a very simplified uh, horizontal line of how things go. You know, so while it is a bit simplified, uh, a model with those phases is pretty common. Unfortunately, it's not uncommon that security testing happens in the test phase or even later, or actually not at all. So with a shift left mindset, what we want to do is like, if we still see this as a horizontal timeline, we want to do things earlier in the timeline. So we're shifting left, we're shifting the security focus a bit left. So instead of doing it in the testing phase, we're actually doing it even earlier. So practically, this means that we should integrate security tests even before we build an official build. Um, and examples of this with Azure DevOps that we are talking about right now is like a PR policy. Before a merge succeeds, a set of tools and builds must run successfully. And these can include code security tools, code analysis, credential scanning, and whatever you want. Uh, so the earlier we can detect any issues, the better. Um, you know, there's no reason to compromise security. And I, I think this, just this phrase, shift left, when you think about your project or your DevOps or DevSecOps, um, you know, timeline horizontal, it makes so much sense. Of course, you just jump left, shift left, and add this thing a bit earlier in the timeline, because then you will remove so many hurdles down the line. I'll, I'll definitely take this to heart and, and I will start shifting more left. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's no reason to not start right now. Yes. Alrighty. So to close this episode, word of the day, and, and we try to learn a little bit more Swedish and Finnish. Let me start with the Finnish version first. And this is something that anybody who grew up in Finland knows. And, and the word is not the easiest one, but once I explain it, it makes perfect sense. So the Finnish word is myötähäpeä. So there's a lot of O's with dots and, and A's with dots. And, and what it means, it means you're being shamed, but in a shared model, meaning that you see somebody else doing something 
and you feel ashamed for them. So you're compassionately ashamed for somebody else and part, partially you also feel ashamed a bit. You're not sure why, but it's, it's kind of this disconnecting experience <laughs> in there. Okay. So can you say this word again? Yeah. Myötähäpeä. Myötähäpeä. Yes. Excellent. Right. Nailed it. So the Swedish word, um, and I guess this is the most Swedish word, word of all. Um, it's called logom. And it means not too much, but also means not too little. It kind of means just right. Uh, and it's widely used when being incredibly indecisive. So if someone in a restaurant asks, you know, how much potatoes do you want? Logom? You know, it's just enough. And if they say five or ten, you will say logom because you, you don't know what to answer or, you know, you just give me just right. Just give me the just right amount of potatoes that I need for my plate, which nobody, of course, will know except for yourself. So this is probably the most Swedish word of all times. This is, this is a great word. I, I haven't used this. I kind of knew about this. So lagom. Uh, can, I, can I combine this with something like I can be lagom skugstugig? Yeah. I mean, that, that would mean like you're kind of moderately furious, which is typically Swedish <laughs> because you're never really furious, but also yeah, so maybe somewhere in between. Maybe you can do that. Okay, um, I'll, I'll start mixing these words just to pe- keep, keep people on their toes. I think we're getting somewhere here. You know, at, at, the end of, um, at the end of this season, I think we'll be able to visit each other countries and be sufficient in you know, the, the most versatile words that we have in our vocabularies. Yeah, we, we get by nicely by then. I hope. All right. So, so this concludes this episode on Azure DevOps and embracing DevSecOps. Until next time. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for tuning in to the Control-Alt-Azure podcast. Find out more and read the show notes on controlaltazure.com. Stay tuned.